Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Nefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 35 of our Disney Honorable Mentions. As we continue on our journeys this week, we will be discussing 2001's Atlantis, The Lost Empire. And 2002's Treasure Planet. We decided to do these as a double feature for a few reasons. They came out almost back to back. Lilo and Stitch happens to fall right in between them. They're both based off of classical pulp adventure stories. And they both were just shy of being box office successes. Atlantis had around a $100 million budget and made back $180 million, whereas Treasure Planet cost about $140 million and made back $100 million or so. They both have a lot of, I guess you could call them the growing pains of Disney's animation at the time. They're moving from flat cell to using CGI, and the amount that they use them well is... A bit hit and miss, but you can definitely see how the animation technology is evolving at the time. They were also very much at the time moving from, like, traditional to sort of drawing and painting. These are also very outside of Disney's normal fare. They're very pulpy, very action-y. What was that slogan for Atlantis? The crew on Atlantis had t-shirts that literally said Atlantis. Less singing, more explosions. Another similarity that they have very distinct aesthetics compared to other Disney films. Both films had a vision for how they wanted to look, and they pursued that very far outside of Disney's traditional style. To a certain extent, a lot of the films in this era did that. Lilo and Stitch did it to a certain extent. With the watercoloring and the very round features. But Lilo and Stitch doesn't feel that far outside of Disney's normal wheelhouse, whereas both of these, they don't feel like they fit in with Disney as well as other things do. Even when things have a vision, they still feel like a vision within the normal brand. Exactly. Since we've kind of been consistent about it, let's go ahead and start chronologically and talk about Atlantis. I'm assuming people kind of know the story. If you haven't seen it in a while, nerdy Michael J. Fox gets recruited for an, an adventure. They find the lost city of Atlantis. Some capitalists try to do what capitalists do in these movies, and it ends badly for them, and there's explosions. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. If you've seen Road to El Dorado, you've more or less seen this movie. Yeah, kind of. I will say, I miss having Michael J. Fox in things. I do appreciate his acting. I appreciate his acting. I don't like Milo as a character, but I don't... It's not Michael J. Fox's fault. No. Definitely not. I think Fox did the best that he could with Milo, but I think Milo's a little just, I don't know, he's just kind of twerpy and annoying. He's a archetypal character that was probably kind of fresh at the time, because I mean, it's only 2000, nerds weren't cool back then, but now we're kind of like, oh, oh. Yeah, and there's still a lot of the baked-in tropes with that. Very often in the film, when Milo is showing off his superior intellect to women, he's very patronizing about it. You can see that in scenes with Audrey fixing the boiler on the digger, and with Kida when he is trying to solve her issues of not getting the flying fish to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, see, there's you problem right there that's an easy thing to miss you know you deserve credit for even even getting this far okay i'll give it a try the tropes of the great white explorer whose superior intellect saves the time-locked brown civilization that he finds is hashtag not great and 
Milo has a lot of that. This film definitely has anti-capitalist and anti-colonial aspects to it, but they're coming from a very white liberal perspective as opposed to centering indigenous cultures that they're commenting on. Yeah. 17 years ago, sure, this this was probably more relevant, but now there's a better understanding of the ways in which this film is problematic. While the film is definitely trying, the Atlanteans design it as being the kind of omni-other. They're a mishmash of every civilization except Europeans. The design of the city, the the character designs and, and clothes, etc. They have very dark skin. They all have white hair. Not like blonde, but like stark white. Their architecture and culture is uh, very reminiscent of Southeast Asia. The design team took inspiration from Tibet, India, Cambodia for some of the ancient architecture. And then if you look at a lot of the bazaar area for the Atlanteans, it definitely reminds me of like a open air market that you would see in that part of the world. Kita is voiced by a black actress. But they also all have um, these very blue eyes. And while that's not an impossibility, there's a sort of recurring thing of having dark-skinned people with blue eyes that they feel very exotic. You see a lot of that with uh, Aurora Monroe of the X-Men's. Mm-hmm. Big Trouble in Little China. That's a whole plot point. Yeah. There really are only two Atlanteans who are actual characters. There's Kida and her dad, who is played by Leonard Nimoy. And everybody else is just sort of there. A few of them have lines, but most of them are just kind of background characters. Yeah, I think we hear Kita's mom speak in the prologue. Mm. And I think we hear maybe one or two other unnamed Atlanteans speak in the entire film. There's a lot of world-building problems with Atlantis, too. Like, they're all immortal, but they've forgotten their language. Yeah, apparently no one can read. To a certain extent, I can understand Kita not being able to read. She was a young child when the cataclysm happened, got lost in the shuffle, whatever. But all of these people are just as old as she is. They specifically call out the crystal as giving the Atlanteans longevity. So why did they all forget their culture and how to operate all these vehicles and how to read? If it were just the royal family who were effectively immortal and everyone else was going through the normal generational shifts and all that sort of thing, then I can understand that loss of knowledge, but here it doesn't make any sense. I can potentially see a scenario where the cataclysm that we don't really fully understand that had to do with the crystal wiped their memories in some way. I can see that being a cool hubris metaphor thing, but that still means they didn't learn anything for 8,000 years, which feels unrealistic, especially since the way of turning on the dish vehicle things is not that complicated. Yeah, you, you put your hand on the little indicator and then turn the crystal. If it was, you know, a hundred years, sure. I could see that being, you know, not something that people figure out. Or if there's only the one crystal to the turny key knob thing. For any of this to work, you have to severely underestimate the ability of the Atlanteans to learn complex things. We paused and talked about this, that if they removed the longevity thing, if it was just they kept having normal generational cycles, it would be perfectly understandable. There's many ways that knowledge can be lost over time. If there was just something that happened in those, you know, 8,000 years, I can totally see that. It removes Kita's whole thing with her mom, but I honestly don't care about the thing with her mom that much. Yeah, they, they don't do a good job of making us care about it. There's also the fact that in the 8,000 years, the Atlanteans never 
try to colonize another part of this undersea cavern area. We see various other different places. Like there's that place with the huge firefly light. They walk through this snowy area. And there's a few others that obviously have some sort of architecture that someone built, whether it was Lantean or something else, who knows. But no, they're all consolidated to this one small island, even though there's life elsewhere in those caverns. There's more beyond the reef. They could have somehow adapted and, you know, expand from just the one city. We do see that when the mother crystal thing crosses outside of the cliff over which all the water is flowing, all the other crystals just turn off immediately. I could see it being a thing that whatever energy is there can't extend beyond that so they can't really grow anything they're out there too long they start aging and dying or whatever but it's not explored super well and also it's still eight thousand years you could have a mortal class like just people who aren't immortal i mean it wouldn't be fun for them but also none of the language makes any sense language makes no sense it, it makes no sense that Kita would be able to speak modern French or English or probably even Latin. That's not how languages work at all. I conceptually like the idea of a smart protagonist who's really good at language and lets them figure out how to communicate with the Atlanteans in some way. But it doesn't make sense that Atlanteans would then be able to jump to English. And I get that it was mostly there so that Milo wasn't the only one talking with the Atlanteans, but Milo pretty much is the only one talking with the Atlanteans, so why bother with it in the first place? I would 100% believe that they could do some crystal thing to transmit the knowledge of languages to them. Yeah, Pocahontas did it. Yeah, and we accepted both, oh it's magic and also this is a plot convention, we're moving on. I think one of the biggest plots of this film is it has an ensemble cast and it does not use it well. No. There's, I think, one or two too many characters. So you've got Mole, Sweet, Audrey, Cookie. Vinny. Helga. Um, General McVillain. Miss Packard. That's eight whole characters, not including uh, Milo and Kida. Or her dad. Yeah, or Milo's grandfather, or the financier of the expedition. I generally like all of the kind of the eight crew members they're they're all pretty fun there's just maybe one or two too many of them and no one gets that much characterization and they waste so much time to like the first half of the film could probably be taken care of in 15 minutes as opposed to how long it takes i don't think we need so much time with milo at the museum i don't think we need so much time with mr whitmore testing milo and all that sort of stuff and we definitely don't need the, like, Milo bullying montage. No. So, if you haven't seen it in a while, the Milo bullying montage is part of their journey to the world beneath this long cave stretch where they're going through these various vistas. And if that had been one or two scenes instead of a montage, it could have been a lot stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, heck, if it had been a song, if they put a song there, that would have actually been a good place for it. But because you have all these scenes that are just kind of comedy, and comedy that comes right after the deaths of 90% of the crew, mm -hmm. it doesn't work. So you've got two different catastrophes that happen. You've got the attack by the Leviathan and then the the Bridge of Galabru or whatever, where they fall down into the pit under the volcano. Yeah, right after the fire. Yeah, it's functionally the same kind of thing happening twice. And if you'd somehow wrapped it into a single catastrophe and put, you know, put the bullying in front and we had less like ludicrous death and less time just wandering, trundling through the caves, 
there's a bit. Milo is fanboying about a ancient column that's been there for years. It must have taken hundreds, no, thousands of years to carve this thing. Hey, look, I made a bridge. It only took me like, what, 10 seconds, 11 tops. And I think if that had been instead of just a moment in the montage, but a full scene where we got the differentiation between Milo and everybody else, that would have been really good and would have told us all we need to know about the crew, Milo's relationship with them, the gulf between them. It's important for that gulf to be there and then that gulf to slowly be eroded throughout the film because that's the whole conceit at the very end is everyone decides to take Milo's side as opposed to Commander Rourke. Because Milo's their friend, not because Atlanteans as a people matter. I think Vinny said it best. We've done a lot of things we're not proud of. Robbing graves, uh, plundering the tombs, double parking. But nobody got hurt. Well, maybe somebody got hurt, but nobody we knew. Which I'd be totally fine with as a character thing, but it's almost every character's thing. And that's... Yeah, literally everyone except Milo and Sweet. Yeah, I do love Sweet. Sweet is great. Yeah. You at three o'clock. Well, no time like the present. Oh boy. Nice, isn't it? The catalog says that this little beauty can saw through a femur in 28 seconds. I'm betting I can cut that time in half. Now, stick out your tongue and say ah. We've been we've been pretty negative so far. Let, let's talk about some positive things. Yeah. I really do like the art style that they went with. It's so pretty. This very angular sort of diesel punk aesthetic you have with all of the explorers and then this southeast asian like angkor wat style for atlantean architecture i think it works really well i think it's visually interesting neat thing actually mike mignola creator of hellboy was actually a production designer for this film oh man really yeah oh i can see that i didn't know watching the film but looking it up later i'm like oh that makes way too much sense I also like the character designs just visually. They're all very expressive. Um, there's a lot of body diversity. Almost everybody has DSL. Also, the action sequences are great. Artistically, all of the action sequences are great. I think narratively, we have way too much where our protagonists are just kind of getting their asses handed to them. I think if they would have been able to conquer the Leviathan, like trap it under a rock or something, I think that would have helped out quite a bit and feel a little bit more triumphant than we did especially since we get the fire later that is also a downer thing right the production team tried really hard to make it very action oriented very pulpy and shy away from the musicals that disney was known for and unfortunately while the action sequences are great they don't do a good job of developing character the way disney songs tend to and so we lose out on lots of character development we lose out on character development for most of the ensemble cast we kind of lose out on it for milo he doesn't really have a very good arc Mm -hmm. He kind of gets more confident, but that's about it. Right. And there's some characters who their motivations and ethics are like all over the place. We're talking about Helga? We're talking about Helga. There's this point where they first get to Atlantis and they, they're driving to the city proper. Helga and Rourke are talking and Helga's like, Commander, they were not supposed to be people down here. It changes everything. Rourke's like, it changes nothing. And then not 10 minutes later, she his oh, all of my issues with committing genocide are gone. I'm totally on Rourke's side. 
it doesn't make any sense. It feels like there were bits that got cut, like maybe Rourke has blackmail or something. Rourke could have had a villain song where he gets Helga over to his side about how being rich is better than civilizations existing. The script was about 155 pages when it was originally written, whereas most Disney scripts are around 90 pages. So they had to act a lot, and I'm guessing there's a lot that was important that got cut there. Yeah, and I think we kept a lot of things that were not important. Mm -hmm. We talked about how Helga being a femme fatale doesn't make any sense because she doesn't really ever actually do any femme fatale things in the plot. So I decided her being a femme fatale is just she's like that that's that's how she chooses to be and i respect that i respect vamping for vamp's sake <laughs> commander rourke uh, i keep calling him general look villain because he's he's every general look villain from every movie ever. oh yeah like you could easily drag and drop rourke into avatar and have him be the main villain there it's the same character yeah or the guy from iron giant that one general from the magic school bus episode where they're in the 1950s movie which is a weird pull that no one's gonna get and i'm okay with that <laughs> he repeatedly does not react with any kind of surprise to seeing Kido walk across the water be pulled up into the crystal merge with it and then come down her eyes glowing and then other weird stuff happening and he talks to milo like explain this milo explain this as if Milo should be able to. Talk to me, Thatch. What's happening? They're a part of it. It's a part of them. I, I'm doing the best I can here. Well, do better. Well, I know. Why don't you translate, and I'll wave the gun around. Given that in the sequel movie that was supposed to be a TV series, but that didn't really happen, we learned that there's a lot of different magic stuff around. Like, Norse mythology is real and also hashtag problematic native american spirits i'm guessing that this is not the first time that rourke has encountered the mystical and so for him this is just another tuesday mm -hmm. whereas for other people less so and i like that aspect of his character i wish we gotten to see a bit more of that i do think we need to talk about kita and the sexualization of kita does he has a problem with sexualizing as women of color. Yeah. This is not new information. We're not breaking new ground here. Yeah. But it needs to be said. So for most of the film, Kida is running around in a rather revealing outfit. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the way that Kida is animated is very male gazy. I mean, especially if you take a look at the scene right before she and Milo dive down to look at the carvings yes the that scene is specifically supposed to be titillating because you know milo is being titillated but it's weird for a disney movie and disney has never done anything like that with one of its white princesses there's also just kind of this weirdness that it's you know been eight thousand years kita's not seeing anybody and like she's just kind of been waiting for white savior milo to show up I get that she falls for him because he can help her rediscover all this culture that's been lost to them. And the film definitely doesn't have time for a love triangle like plot arc. It just, I don't know, it feels weird and Kita deserves better. It has elements of the born sexy yesterday trope. Yeah. It's not a perfect example of that, but it's definitely adjacent. Yeah. It doesn't help that Kita is turned into a crystal and put in a box for most of the third act. Yeah, she literally becomes an object. And doesn't get to have any agency or autonomy while doing so? Yeah, like, she gets phenomenal cosmic power, eedy living space. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
you could argue that she saves Atlantis at the end when she turns on the shield golems or whatever, but we don't really get the sense that's her. It seems more to be the crystal using her body in the way that it's not Jean Grey who ate that planet, it's the Phoenix who ate that planet. On the flip side, while Helga does do a lot of vamping and femme fataling, she also, you know, is normally in not too revealing outfits apart from some, you know, ooh, shoulders, ooh. and Audrey gets to be in overalls for most of the film. So it's not that all women are sexualized in this film. It could be a lot worse, but it's maybe not great. Yeah. I wish I had more good things to say about the film. A lot of small stuff here and there that on their own we could give a pass to, but there's just a lot of like hashtag problematic going through. Exactly. Death by a Thousand Cuts. Yeah. Honestly, I really would love to see the original screenplay and see if that would have been any better than the film that we got here. Yeah. I think if they enriched Atlantis as a place, that could have helped a lot. And I'm guessing that was probably in there at some point. Mm Mm-hmm. That said, the film was generally pretty well received. It has good reviews on you know, Cinema School, Rotten Tomatoes, etc. So why didn't it do well? Uh, it did come out a few weeks uh, after Shrek did. Mm. Shrek being so popular and being a completely 3D animated film kind of put a damper on 2D for a while. The public wanted 3D. That was the new thing. And Shrek also was a big middle finger to Disney, so I can see how Disney films... Especially ones that are already not super on brand would be in a shaky place. Mm -hmm. And then it also came out the same week as the first Tomb Raider film with um, Angelina Jolie. Which, if you're looking for pulp action-adventure stuff, that is also going to fill that same itch. Also, the next week was Fast and the Furious, the first one. Mm -hmm. Which, a different kind of movie, a different kind of action, but I watched the trailer for it. I have no idea what happened in that movie. The trailer tells you nothing, but it shows you fast cars and explosions and cool dialogue and sexy. So, it's giving you everything that you could theoretically get in Atlantis, but with the fuck word. (laughs) So if you're at an age where you don't need things to be family-friendly, that's maybe more what you're going to go with. If you're looking at the teen demographic, they're definitely going to lean more towards Laura Croft, towards the Fast and the Furious, or even to Shrek. Shrek is at least irreverent. Let's shift over to a movie that I think has aged very well, Treasure Fucking Planet. Honestly, watching these two films was like night and day. (laughs) Yeah. Treasure Planet is doing almost everything Atlantis is trying to do, but better if you haven't seen treasure planet in a long time imagine muppet treasure island but in space it's as dark a tale as was ever told of the lust for treasure and the love of gold yeah disney has made multiple interpretations of this because i believe they have a live action one from like the 50s yeah walt disney whose artistry marked a new era in motion picture entertainment now sets a new milestone with his first all live action feature Treasure Island. So Disney's done this story many different times. I honestly think this is the strongest one. I haven't seen Muppet Treasure Island in a long time, so I can't say for sure. I didn't let myself watch it because I would just only want to talk about that. I think one of the reasons why this film did so well is because it was a passion project from Musker and Clemens. Mm-hmm. They made, what, five movies to getting there? They had been pitching this for a long time, and Disney kept saying, no, you're going to do this. No, you're going to do this. And then finally they realized, like, okay, do your silly little treasure planet thing. Treasure Island as a story has a bunch of plot beats you have to hit, but how you hit them and how much weight you give them changes on the telling. Like getting rid of Arrow and Jim and Silver being friends and Ben Gunn, the Maroonie. And this one hits a lot of those points really, really well. In the original book, when Mr. Arrow 
goes overboard. He drank too much and then he, he, he's gone. That's it. That's the whole thing. He's dead, Jim. Whereas here, they make it an integral part of the plot, Jim's character development, the deepening of the villain's motivations. It's really well done. Honestly, Arrow's death is kind of this emotional fulcrum of the film. Everything before it is building towards it, and then everything after is affected by it. Mm-hmm. It helps that this is a really good Arrow. Like, you really like this character. His banter with Captain Amelia is amazing. Let me make this as monosyllabic as possible. I don't much care for this crew you hired. They're... How did I describe them, Arrow? I said something rather good this morning before coffee. A ludicrous parcel of driveling galoots, ma'am. There you go. Poetry. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Captain Amelia, I love her. She's wonderful. If you were going to change the gender of a character for this narrative, I think changing the captain to a woman is probably the best place you could do it. I will say, just to get the few bad things I have for this movie out of the way, she gets kind of sidelined when she gets injured, and I'm kind of sad about that. I wish she got more to do in the third act. But she's still around. She's still talking. She still has some agency, just not as much as she could have. Yeah. Delver, too, to a certain extent, the same thing happens with him. I mean, he's had less agency most because he's a comic relief character, but the same thing happens with them towards the third act. Yeah, it bothers me more than Amelia because she's one of the few women in the plot. Yeah, with Jim's mom, Sarah, and like one or two of the crew that read as female. Yeah, speaking of Jim's mom, Sarah, Jim has a mom with lines. That gets to feel some very complex emotions and interact with her son in very interesting ways. It's been said pretty often that action films in general very rarely have mother-son dynamics, and this is one of the greats. We can stop beating around the bush of it. Uh, everyone's first gay crush, Jim Pleiades Hawk questionable hair choices and amazing vehicles between him and captain amelia i'm sure many a child figured out they were queer from this film (laughs) speaking of the vehicles i absolutely adore this film's aesthetic this almost spelljammer vibe the way they've taken this pirate pulp high seas adventure aesthetic and translated into space is just wonderful we see all these really interesting aliens and we have these solar sails on these ships that look straight out of the victorian age but still have rocket thrusters and laser guns that that feel like they should be on that boat not like they're tacked on they use ropes and it doesn't make a lot of sense but whatever it's just part of the aesthetic Mm -hmm. western clements had this thing called the 70 30 rule they would have about 70 percent victorian and 30 30% sci-fi, which was a really good mix, and it gels surprisingly well. Mm -hmm. I do really love the RLS legacy as a name. RLS stands for Robert Lewis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island, and naming the ship Legacy is just, it's very on the nose, but in a very good way. Honestly, this film, if it wasn't as ridiculously genuine, but without questioning it or bringing attention to it, it wouldn't work as well. But no one ever wonders why are they using ropes in space? Why can we breathe in the Ethereum and all that jazz? How does the gravity thing work? The gravity works because the thing spins and lights up. That's why. We've talked about the aesthetic and some of the characters, but really the crux of this 
film is all centered on Long John Silver. Mm-hmm. This is one of the adaptations that very heavily focuses on the relationship between Jim and Silver and what that means to both of them. It explores that relationship in very interesting, very compelling ways. Partially, you have Jim, who in other adaptations is more precocious than delinquent. But here, Jim's design and character are the most 90s interpretation of Rebel Without a Cause, and it works so well here. So you've got this kid who feels like he's a screw-up, hasn't had a solid father figure in his life for a long time, and then you stick him with Long John Silver, who has been after this treasure for his entire life, has lost literally an arm and a leg to try and get it. You give up a few things, chasing a dream. Neither of them wants to be stuck with the other at the beginning, and they each kind of make the most of the situation on the ship. And Jim realizes that he's actually doing really well on the ship, and he, like he, he's got what it takes to do this. And Silver is seeing the makings of greatness in him. You got the makings of greatness in you. And he realizes that Jim's a good kid. All he needs is a little encouragement and a decent father figure in his life. And on some level, he wants to be that, but it's just come at the most inopportune time. He's juggling three different roles on the ship. He's juggling trying to be this almost brown-noser-esque character with Arrow and Captain Amelia. He's trying to be this ruthless pirate captain to control the rest of the crew and then probably the closest to real that we see of silver is whenever he interacts with jim silver's internal conflict as he realizes that he's starting to care about this person and if he wants to finally get all that gold then he's going to have to hurt him and the uncertainty that both we the audience and especially jim feel with how much of what silver is saying is true and how much his manipulation is really affecting. There's a bit where Silver is comforting Jim right after things happen that make it seem like Jim is responsible for Arrow's death, mm-hmm. where he actually gives Jim like the catharsis he needs and lets him collapse in his arms and cry and doesn't like judge him, doesn't you know like, oh just man up or anything. He just lets him have that emotional space and it's cool to see these characters being vulnerable. The movie's artistic choices also will help a lot with this. The film uses color palette shifts to denote the emotion that the characters are feeling Mm. incredibly well. Jim will go from like brooding on the rooftop in like these dingy browns and grays and then Billy Bones's ship crashes on their docks and the next scene his skin tone's much brighter much more flush. There's other colors going on in the scene because there's this tinge of excitement going on. Some of the best examples of this are also in the montage of I'm Still Here, which also does an excellent job with the transitions between what's currently going on in the ship and these flashbacks to Jim's relationship with his father and just how this flashback scene and how the shot is framed and then transition to a similar framing in the modern day and... It all works incredibly well. And then another big part of it is the choice to A, make Long John Silver a cyborg, and also make him not quite human. He's human enough for us to, for the most part, read him that way, but 
his nose is a little off and he's kind of got claws instead of fingernails. And it allows them to get more exaggeration of emotion out of him. And that really helps sell the emotional arcs that the character is going through. Very similar to how they did with Beauty and the Beast. Yes, definitely. And now... aided by having this holy CGI half of his body. The organic part of him is drawn traditionally, but the cyborg part of him is digital animation. And it's cool that these two styles go into the same character because it kind of adds into this whole idea of this person who's made of different parts. Yeah, like there's an inherent duality about Long John Silver, and it's baked right into his aesthetics. Mm -hmm. It's a quick side thing, but... I appreciate that everybody whose ears are pierced is uh, pierced on the left. They're all the left ear buccaneers. Also, the way they introduce Jim, I think, is a real strong point. Both times. Yeah, both times. We first initially see it. We, we see the you know story of Captain Flint, narrated by Tony J. <laughs> did they suspect that they were pursued by pirates and then all of a sudden we see jim's face and we realize oh this is some sort of hollow recording in like storybook and then we pan out and we see jim in his room under the covers with the the light emanating from the book just like we've seen so many times before in uh, tales about young boys who don't want to go to sleep and will like have flashlights and be reading comics same sort of thing his mother catches him and the way everything goes after that you can tell that reading from the storybook is become a ritual for them like this is a thing that they do probably every night that this is an incredibly common domestic scene eases us into the aesthetic of the film because i mean it's functionally something you see in every movie it's just that it happens to have the hollow book and it lets us have a sense of what we're in for without overloading us mm-hmm. then we transition to probably eight to ten years later <laughs> Uh, hi, yeah, it's 12 years later. The soundtrack is literally called 12 years later. I should know that. 12 years later is my favorite instrumental Disney piece, bar none. I don't know why I didn't catch that. I guess I'm just incompetent. I don't know why you're all listening to me. That was a mistake. Jim's a teenager. Like, he's so cool. He's, he's got on all these dark clothes. He is skyboarding through this industrial park. Where he's not supposed to be. It's out of bounds. Yeah. He eventually gets caught by the police. And the officer can't remember the exact place of the violation that Jim's just committed. We apprehended your son operating a solar vehicle in a restricted area. Moving violation 904, section 15, paragraph um, 6. Thank you. Don't mention it. Jim. That tells you everything you need to know about Jim that's happened in the past, like, eight to ten years. It also sets up this idea of robots with fallible memories, which 
a weird thing to foreshadow, but this movie has a lot of really good subtle foreshadowing. Yeah. Although, I will admit that, in general, I'm not a huge fan of the two robot cops. Not because they're robots, but I think that's one of the parts of the film that feels the most out of place, because they don't feel like Victorian cops, and they don't quite feel like sci-fi cops. They very much feel... Like, they feel like they're also taken directly out of Rebel Without a Cause, like this 1950s cops, like, oh, like this this kid's already a foregone conclusion that he's a bad egg and there's nothing that can help him at this point. I'm going to make an argument that both major robot characters in this film, uh, if you got the cops as one character, it's whatever, feel very out of place in the film, which makes sense because they're robots in a mostly organic society. But that's maybe giving the film a little bit too much credit, so... We've kind of already touched on it already, but... Let's go ahead and get into Ben. <laughs> About halfway through the film, the characters are you know, touching down on Treasure Planet, and I go, oh, right. Because <laughs> I'd forgotten that Ben is in this film. In the book, Ben is a castaway. Here, Ben is a navigation android that was specifically part of Captain Flint flint's crew and the ben from the book is a bit of a cipher because he's weird and larger than life and he's gone mad from the isolation etc so every adaption has tried to figure out what to do with ben as a character every adaption wants to do some cool new thing and here um it didn't quite work with ben here captain flint tore out his memory so he's literally lost his mind and he he can't remember there's something that they need to know about captain flint's horde but ben just can't remember. He's all over the place and he's very absent-minded, forgetful, and he's also very loud. He talks louder than everyone else in the film, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that he just doesn't work, is that even auditorially he feels out of place because he's just so loud and obnoxious. I think that this angle with Ben could have worked, but I unfortunately don't think Martin Short was a good casting choice for this. It very much felt like they wanted to get Robin Williams for this role and couldn't. And I think an actor like Robin Williams could have pulled this out. If you remember his character from Jumanji, it felt like that was the sort of thing that they were going for here. Mm -hmm. I really hate to say it, but I think Ben could have worked had they gotten a different performer. Very rarely do I think that it is a performer's fault when something falls flat in a film like this, but I kind of think it is here. Maybe not specifically Martin Short, but the director they had organizing all the voiceover, I, I don't think was directing him well. No. That said, he's not a complete waste. He's useful to the plot. And Ben trying to fix the circuits in the ship while Jim is battling Mr. Scroop makes for a fun action scene and means that Jim doesn't have to shoot anybody in the film, which might have been a little bit dark for a Disney protagonist. But it's never that he's unwilling to shoot someone. It's just the film keeps not letting him. That's another real nice thing about the aesthetic is it allows Disney to have all these guns in the film, but they're laser guns, so it's totally fine. Yeah, pirates kind of need flintlock pistols to feel like pirates. Going back to Ben a bit, even Jim is annoyed by Ben. Jim's willing to put up with a lot in this movie, but he kind of wants to just forget and leave Ben to his own devices when he first meets him. Honestly, those two things are like really my only qualms with the film. The other thing I really like about this film is that they've got a lot of characters who really lean into comic relief, but they never step on their toes. You've got Delbert Doppler. He kind of has these Freudian slips. Well, I have a lot of help to offer anatomically, amandamonically, astronomically. He's just kind of a dork. He's what uh, Milo Thatch would have grown up to if he didn't happen to stumble into being the king of Atlantis. 
Yeah. Then you have Morph, who is this like playful trickster pet type character. I think that's another reason that Ben kind of falls flat is you've, you've already got Morph and Delbert who are pretty significant in the plot. And I don't think Ben was able to find a good place for comic relief between those two. And even uh, up to a certain point, like Amelia gets to have a lot of really fun lines that mm-hmm. are a, a different type of humor. That's actually one of the reasons that her and Delbert play off each other so well is they both have very wordplay-esque humor sensibilities. Yeah. And their relationship is a little bit weird and you probably, maybe you could if you want to read a little bit too much into like, oh, the strong woman is really looking for some man to tell her what to do or whatever, but I don't, whatever. I don't, it's, it's fine. They're, I'm fine with them having this weird, slightly dom subby thing happening. Yes, yes, now listen to me. Stop giving orders for a few milliseconds and lie still. Very forceful, Doctor. Go on, say something else. We haven't even talked that much about the animation. The action is really good and all holds up. And even when the animation is a little bit dated, it doesn't feel too bad because there's so much of it that it feels like part of the film's aesthetic. The lighting is incredible and space has never looked cooler. It's a gorgeous looking film. Honestly, I think that kind of leads into one of the reasons why I don't think it did very well. So it's a gorgeous looking film, but all that prettiness came at quite a bit of expense. And I'm not sure Disney was 100% willing to make those sorts of investments again if this film did well. I think that's one of the reasons why they under-advertised this film. To be fair, there wasn't really a good time for this movie to come out in 2002. It opened against Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Oof. Yeah. Which didn't do as well as the first one. The first one made $900 million. This one <laughs> only made $800 million of, of the Harry Potter films, but it was still steep competition. But also, this is a summer movie. This is very clearly a summer blockbuster, yes? Yeah. So May was Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. June was Lilo and Stitch. There wasn't a lot in July and August, I guess, Spy Kids, but that's still really close to Lilo and Stitch, and I get that Disney wouldn't want to, you know, oversaturate their market. Yeah, and if you have to choose one of those two films to come out during the summer, you definitely want it to be Lilo and Stitch. Definitely. Then in September and October, had they come out then, it would have competed with Spirited Away, also released by Disney. Yeah. Which... I love Spirited Away. I get not wanting to risk that market because that's kind of a bit of a gamble. Especially because Spirited Away was one of the first from Miyazaki to get big in the United States. Yeah. Then in December, The Two Towers came out. Ugh. People also cited Santa Claus 2, which came out in early November. And Disney just swapped them around. If they um, had Treasure Planet come out in the first week and put Santa Claus 2 in the last week when Treasure Planet came out, Santa Claus 2 could have been a good holiday film. It would have been a very different market than Chamber of Secrets, so we might have done a bit better. And Treasure Planet would have two or three weeks to build up some steam before Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets petrified it. Admittedly, the ads weren't very kind to it. Disney didn't really know how to market this. I think that's a big problem with a lot of the films during the Disney's experimental period is they spent a decade being the fairy tale people who do musicals and then when they wanted to stretch their wings a little bit and branch out they didn't know how to market themselves. A lot of the trailers for Treasure Planet are just explosions, people yelling, ships going back and forth that do show off a bit of the aesthetic but that's about all so you don't get the 
deeper emotional beats that um, might have drawn more people in. Yeah, I honestly think that if they would have gone with a reinterpretation of a classic and maybe even intercut it with like scenes from their live action Treasure Island for a new millennium, I think that would have been a pretty decent way to market that film. That could have been really good, but unfortunately they didn't, and there are a lot of things that all contributed to this film not succeeding, which is why we don't have, like, Treasure Planet, the TV series. This is prime cut for animated TV show. I don't know why that's not a thing, apart from the money. Unfortunately, the best way to get, like, more of this style of things is to, like, go play Spelljammer. There's not a lot of things that are like this, unfortunately, and I, I want more. <laughs> For those who don't know, because maybe not all of you are turbo nerds, Spelljammer is basically D&D in space. It's literally a campaign setting for second edition of Dungeons & Dragons. You know all the fun that Warhammer 40k isn't having? <laughs> Spelljammer stole all that fun. There are evil space hippos. I love them. If you have never seen it or it has been a while, I heavily encourage you find a DVD or maybe it's your, your local library. I doubt this is streaming anywhere, unfortunately. While it was a box office failure, it's very well loved. I don't know anybody who's like, oh yeah, Treasure Planet. I don't like that movie. Yeah, anyone who I've talked to about Treasure Planet who does not have a good opinion of it is like, wait, that was a movie? Or <laughs> has played Disney Seen It and <laughs> is frustrated that they don't know any of the answers to those questions. I can't insert a meme into a podcast. <laughs> so imagine that I just put up the, uh, the get good image. Uh, <laughs> What's up next week? Next week, we are finishing up with our Disney honorable mentions with The Black Cauldron. We figured we should go ahead and round this off with what's considered probably Disney's worst animated film. Which is an odd designation. I think we've learned that Disney has some pretty bad animated <laughs> films. Yes. Sometime in early January, we'll be releasing the first episode of our next bracket, which is on comic films. But not those comic films. We'll have a post up showing off our bracket and explaining our reasoning for the choices that we made for what's on it. That'll probably be towards the end of the month. And if you want to make sure to catch that, you can make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. We may do an audio version of that post. We'll see if there's enough interest. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. We hope you tune in next time. One more time now! Shiver my timbers, shiver my